Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Listeners, welcome back to another episode of On the Side with me, Jackie London, your host and friendly registered dietitian. I am thrilled about today's episode. I honestly want to ramble, like I'm tempted to ramble to you guys right now, but I'm not going to because she's that amazing. So Dr. Rachel Reed is an exercise physiologist. She received both her master's and doctoral degrees from the University of Georgia, their department of kinesiology. And she grew up as a competitive cheerleader throughout college. She was cheerleading. She's worked as a trainer. She has group fitness certifications as an adult. And honestly, in her adult life, in her career, she has been consulting with various companies, with fitness companies, redesigning a variety of the exercise science programs and curriculums within different corporations, at different companies, in different organizations. And we get into so many different fascinating topics. I actually had the privilege of meeting Rachel when I was at Weight Watchers and she was at Orange Theory. And we are both solo agents, entrepreneurs, solo entrepreneurs. I'm not going to use the word that puts those two together because I just find it too annoying. You know what I'm talking about. I'm just going to hint at it. You can think about it and then I'll stop talking. We get into so many different things. We talk about behavioral science and communication of behavioral science and where we need more of it. We talk about the ways in which both industry and education need to and should be essentially partnering more often in ways that are more meaningful and why compromise is so important for both of those two areas of work for both of us. Um, We talk about the number one thing, the only thing that all of us need to know about the role of exercise on our health. I think you're going to get so much out of this episode. There's something that she says close to the end of the episode that honestly just blew my mind. I I felt like crying. It was so powerful. So I really think you're going to love it. If you like what you hear today, please leave me a rating, a five-star rating. If you love it, just say so. You know what I mean? And a review of the podcast of the episode. Tell me what you loved, something you learned from the episode. Feel free to share that far and wide on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok. I'm on all of those platforms at Jacqueline London RD. All right. Without further ado, Dr. Rachel Reed. But first, let's get to a quick listener question. Okay, today's question is honestly amazing. It says, help me solve an argument with my hubby. I get bone broth and he says, what's the difference between bone broth and soup? (laughs) More probiotics? Is there anything redeeming? 
Okay, basically, is bone broth better, worse, the same thing as regular chicken stock? And the answer, I am so sorry to tell you this, the answer to that is that there is absolutely no difference. We have been making bone broth since the beginning of, the, of time. And honestly, I really feel like we it went from stock to bone broth when like paleo became a thing. Am I right? Like paleo and Whole30, like back in 2015, 2016. I feel like that's when we started seeing bone broth just explode everywhere. And certainly at that time, I was going to a variety of food shows all over the place and it was popping up left and right. And it drives me insane, literally only for that reason, because I feel like it's insulting to our collective grandparents, our collective grandmothers, if I may just correct myself here, because let's be honest, my grandma was cooking all the damn time, and she was always making a stock of some sort, a bone broth situation, if you will. Very trendy today. She could have marketed that and made zillions, but honestly, I just saw Dr. Kellyanne's bone broth at the Whole Foods, and I went nearly apoplectic. I feel like they were about to escort me out. I mean, honestly, guys, best bet is any of those, my only concern would be to look at the sodium because so often stock, because you're using it to make the base of any type of soup or any stock-based soup, right? It's going to be highly concentrated in the amount of sodium that it has, particularly in packaged versions. And that really leads me back to my grandmother's stock, which was much lower in sodium because she was making it her damn self. But who has that kind of time? Realistically, in 2022, we don't have that kind of time. So I would say your best bet is to look for ones that are under 300 milligrams of sodium or less. I don't care if it's stock. I don't care if it says it's soup. I don't care if it says that it is Kellyanne's bone broth, honestly, although I'd prefer you didn't buy that bone broth because why is she making so much money off of bone broth being sold at Whole Foods? It's unreal. But Regardless, you're always going to get the nutritional benefits of calcium, potassium, magnesium, iron. All of these are present in any type of stock that's made from the bones of animals because that's often what we're actually finding in those bones. Those are the minerals that make up bones. So it stands to reason that that's what's going to make it into the actual package. I give that guideline of 300 milligrams or less because high sodium foods are ones that are considered for 480 milligrams per serving, which is about 20% of the daily value for sodium for human beings everywhere. So just to try and keep things that you are shopping for, that you're looking for in that soup aisle or in the broth aisle or in the bone broth aisle, Carla, if you're at the Whole Foods, you know, and listening to me ramble about this right now, I think maybe just look for the deal and look for the deal on the lower sodium, reduced sodium, or low sodium bone broths. I'd leave that guideline at, you know, around 300 milligrams or less. It, that may be really challenging depending on where you're shopping or where you live. So, you know, I would try to max out at 480 milligrams or less of sodium per serving. You can find lots of different options. I know Amy's Kitchen makes lower sodium soups. She also makes reduced sodium soups and low sodium soups. And the same is true of Pacific Organic, which makes great broths of all different kinds. You can also find veggie broths and quote unquote bone broths or chicken stock or beef stock or fish stock, <laughs> all of those. 
can be bone broth if we just packaged and marketed them slightly differently. So you will find those when you are looking for options. You can also always order those online and you can often order them in bulk or do a subscribe and save if you're using them more frequently via Amazon Prime. All right, I hope that helps. Again, recap, no difference between bone broth and stock. And you live, you learn. You know what I mean? Rachel, this is a beautiful reunion for us. I'm so happy to see you. How are you? Tell us. <laughs> Tell us oh, how are you? Oh, gosh. I'm doing well. First of all, I'm so happy to see you, too. I'm doing well. We have another baby since we so, last I mean, um, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, so now you have, so you have two babies. Two we have two babies. Two, which is crazy. So I'm a mom of two, which just sounds bizarre like sometimes I feel like that's a fake <laughs> life so our oldest one's four and a half he just started pre-k which feels like a parental milestone, milestone. sort of like wow we survived like our child is now in school and like we did that and then the little one's nine months old so amazing it's crazy but I can't believe nine months I mean I couldn't get over the the pre-k I totally I could totally understand that right like the idea of being like we kept you alive and yes. then you made it here. <laughs> yes. Which you is, made it, it to the like free game. Yeah. Totally. Oh my God. So Wait, but good. already started, right? Because it's August. Yeah. Yeah. So he already started, which it's going well so far. Knock on wood, that continues. He's like learning how to write words and I'm like, it's just crazy how fast they learn. It's like a science experiment, which you know right. I love because you can like watch them retain right. or model behavior. And then I'm like, wow, our child is a genius. I'm sure every parent thinks that. I'm like, oh, he can write the word cat. He's a genius, you know? And then I'm like, okay, that's like age appropriate, you know, when I take a step back. But when you're in it, you're like, wow. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> is this Mensa? Like, but I crazy. I know. That's amazing. That is amazing. Okay. So before we get into other things, we got to kind of back it up. We got to back it up because I actually don't know the answer to this question, which is how did you get to be Dr. Rachel Reed versus Rachel Reed? (laughs) How did you, how did you get on the path to getting a PhD in exercise physiology? That's, that's your PhD. It is. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. So I grew up as a competitive cheerleader. Um, I I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that. That's so cool. What about that Netflix show? We'll talk about it after you. Okay. I'll shut up, but then we'll talk about it. (laughs) Obsessed with the Netflix show. I follow most of them on Instagram um, just to watch the videos because it reminds me of like how athletic I used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so I grew up as a competitive cheerleader and ended up cheering in college um, at oh UNC God. Chapel Hill in undergrad. I cheered there, which was so much fun. And Amazing. some of my very closest friends I made and still keep up with from, from cheering there. And we got exposed to really specific, like sports specific training there. So we okay. had a trainer, we did, you know, Olympic lifting. We did a lot of plyometric type training. And I started to kind oh. of think about how cool it was that you could train somebody to have specific outcomes and it can yes. improve performance. We worked with, you know, a team dietitian oh. to make sure nutrition was maximized for performance. And also that, you know, we were maintaining bone density, eating enough, yeah. right? Those are things that yeah. you hear the word cheerleading or gymnastics and you kind of associate sort of like those 
watch outs, right? Like from a nutrition point of view, we had a team physician. And so I kind of just, I saw how all of that was working and became really fascinated with this idea that athletes in college and professionally, they can really benefit from having this care team and how cool it was that a trainer, an athletic trainer or, you know, strength and conditioning coach could have such an influence there. And then it was time for me to pick a major. I was kind of like, this is a no brainer. Like you can study exercise science. I was like, this seems like a dream. I like to exercise. This makes sense with my like lived experience. Yeah. I'm doing it. Um, Oh my God. That's so brilliant. So I loved it. And those classes were, were so tough. Like you took um, biomechanics, you had to take all the physics, the biology, chemistry, all of that. So a lot of the pre-med track because much of the knowledge overlaps with like the medical and and health fields and exercise science. Actually, exercise science came from the medical field. It's derived from that, which is really interesting. So after school, I thought maybe I wanted to be a physical therapist. And gosh, I went and did all, you have to do a million observation hours, like legitimately, I think 1200 for most programs. Oh my God. So many. So doing all the observation hours. And during that time, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, most of the people I'm observing are treating knee injuries, shoulder injuries, hip injuries, maybe some pelvic floor dysfunction, all of which are important. But I just kept thinking, I don't want to be on the treatment side. Like I want to be on the prevention side. Like this doesn't feel authentic to me, but it just, it was the track that most people and that program went was either physical therapy school or PA school yeah. or medical school. And so I ended up taking a gap year and got some hands-on oh. experience, which, yeah, I feel like so many people that are trained as academics, they don't talk about this kind of right. stuff. Yes. Why? I know. Why not a gap year? It's time. I mean, you got to figure it out. Otherwise it feels like, how are you going to know? Yeah. How do you know? So I took that gap year and that was so important for me because I got experience working with actual people. So many times academics and I mean, gosh, so many different health fields. You learn all this theory, you learn so much science, and then you get in front of a person who you're supposed to be like you have no coaching idea. or treating. And you're kind of like, I don't know how to talk to you. Right. I forgot that you're an actual person. And what I read in the book may kind of apply, but you might have this other stuff that we need to infuse. And so that year was really formative for me because I got to see how science needs to apply Yes, in the real world. And so with that, I decided, okay, I want to do the research track. Like, let's keep going. So I um, mm. came to the University of Georgia for my master's degree and I was in the physical activity measurement lab, which like, can you get any nerdier? That's now, so is- cool. That's <laughs> so cool. What happens in the physical activity measurement lab? <laughs> It's so crazy. So at that time, this is like 2010. That's when like physical activity trackers were first coming out to the consumer oh market. God, that's so you right. Like the early Fitbits, they were bulky. So yeah. this lab was really looking at, you know, the validity. So how accurate are these like consumer wearables when you compare them to research grade wearables? And then at the time, the lab was also really focused on this idea of compensatory responses. So Mm. when someone starts a physical activity program, or maybe they start going to the gym more, how do their other behaviors change to sort of maintain a level of energy expenditure, right? Because, gosh, I mean, we could talk about energy expenditure and exercise for so long. Oh my God, yes. are obsessed 
with <laughs> a lower expenditure from exercise. First of all, not to burst your bubble if you're listening, right. but most of our wearables even today are not very valid or reliable when it comes to estimating energy expenditure from exercise. So that's one thing. But okay, wait a second. Wait a second. We got to talk about that because uh-huh. I I feel like it's one of those <laughs> I feel like it's one of those things that a lot of people who have the trackers maybe know, but don't yeah. really know. Tell us why. Tell us why you why you feel like they're not feel why why you know that they're not okay so accurate. <laughs> so one, I think it's important to know that most of these are coming from regression equations. You're like yeah. y equals mx plus b. That right, you exactly. In, like when you learn that high school, middle school, I don't know, college, high. School. Not in high school, high school, but like not applied in the same way until graduate school for me. But yeah, but I, I mean, I it was, but you remember you know, that equation. Yes. A hundred percent. I can see it on a whiteboard with that, with that marker. hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so first of all, most of these are coming from equations. So they're estimates, which that's important right. to know. Okay. Where it's an estimate and that always has some error associated with it. Then you think about the fact that most of these equations are relying on or assuming a linear relationship between heart rate and energy expenditure, meaning the higher your heart rate, the more energy is expended. And that's generally true. Generally, that's true. The big but here is that the underlying assumption of most of those equations is that you're doing steady state exercise. So that's most Mm. true in steady state exercise. So say you're like, you're going out for a walk and, and your heart rate's pretty steady, right? Your pace is pretty consistent. You're kind of holding a certain um, intensity level and your heart rate is reflective of that. It's going to be more accurate under that setting than it would be under like a hit or circuit training workout where you're purposefully going up and down, which is what is popular now. That's what most group exercise classes are. That's what most of us, myself included, like to do at the gym. And so you're violating the assumption of that equation. And so it's just introducing more and more noise. Wow. Isn't that interesting? No, that's so cool because, yes, I mean, like, that's the, that's such a missing piece of that entire discussion is that like it's so true. Every hit routine is is in violation of the basic principle of the tracker, which is so crazy. Yeah, and like a lot yeah. of these companies have enhanced the algorithms with right. other inputs, right? Like right, they right. might be asking you to update your age, your sex, your weight, and yeah. all of those inputs, you know, are being utilized in addition to that heart rate reading. And yeah. so, you know, you got to think about is the placement exactly where it was when they tested it for validity right. and reliability? Is the weight that you have entered in the app actually Accurate. your weight? Like, right. I mean, <laughs> mine isn't right now because I'm still postpartum and nursing right. and hanging on to extra weight to be able to do that. And that's right. totally, like, I'm fine with that, but, but I don't it's not it's updated right. in my trackers, right? So all of those things can influence the estimation equations that are used. And so I... So yeah, we got off on a big tangent there. But okay, but I'm so glad thing. we did. That was so interesting. Okay, yes, keep going. One more thing. Yes. Okay, so maybe not the most accurate for estimating caloric expenditure, but there's a good body of research that shows self-monitoring behaviors like wearing a tracker, journaling, making a mark on your calendar, et cetera, 
can help us maintain that behavior change or even initiate behavior change. So I still wear, and I know you love behavior change. I still wear trackers. (laughs) I like them for that reason. Okay. I like them for that reason. See, you have one on. I have one on my Apple Watch, but you know, I, Sometimes I want to smack it against the wall just because it like it annoys me for other reasons. I just feel like the interface could be a lot easier. But anyway, Carrie, I, I didn't mean to go on that tangent. <laughs> I just am like, honestly, why do I have to scroll this far to get a timer? I just wanted to set five minutes on these eggs or whatever. Like I, I just feel like know. certain things are just annoying. But anyway, okay. Keep going. I totally agree. So I think they're good for behavior change, for self-monitoring, right. even for tracking like improvements or patterns over time. Yeah. I just don't love when people like live and die by that number. 100%. 100%. You know, first of all, I think it's such a good point because what I think is lost from the tracker of any type, right? It's giving you a general, you could call it a baseline, you could call it a benchmark, you could call it like a framework of where you want to be, what you're doing, where you want to go, right? But like, it's still not going to teach you to say, you're really exhausted today. You need to just not do anything. You need to lay down and put on the Netflix show about, I can't, what's it called? Cheer. It's called Cheer. Cheer. You need to put on Cheer and just lay down and hang out for today because your your body needs rest, right? Like it's never going to tell you that. And it's also never going to tell you, hey, I mean, it'll tell you to maybe stand up, but it's not going to say, you need to push yourself a little bit more if you really want to start. It'll just tell you that you're low on things. It's not really assessing your your actual physical state of health yeah. and well-being. It's just kind of giving you one number. I totally agree. Yeah, it's not giving you really any like context to the right. numbers that are there. I think that's right. And that's so important when you're thinking about health behaviors, whether it's nutrition, yeah. whether it's exercise sleep even, but it's giving you just like this one insight. And then a lot of, I know a lot of the companies are working really hard to give you better insights and better context, but I just think we're not quite there yet. Um, 100%. 100%. Anyway. Okay. So we got into the energy expenditure. So tell us you were at the physical activity measurement lab in Georgia. In Georgia, loved it there, um, finished up and then was still kind of like, gosh, do I want to go to school for four more years? (laughs) Because at that point, like you've done undergrad, you've done two years of a master's degree. And I was kind of like, you know, I'm not sure about this. And a clinical research coordinator role opened up at the university, but in a different lab, the body composition and metabolism lab. So I took a one-year research coordinator role, which was really great because it exposed me to managing a research team with lots of different types of experts. So we had, of course, we had exercise scientists, we had registered dietitians, we had a cardiologist, and that lab was really focused on middle-aged and older women, specifically Mm -hmm. nutrition and exercise interventions using higher protein diet and resistance training. And that was so much fun because I got to kind of think about like the business side of research a little bit, right? Like from a manager point of view of, all right, we've got to put all these like operational processes into place so that we can ethically collect Mm. the data so that we can make sure everyone's trained on how to do that well. Then we need to manage the database Then we need to, you know provide result updates to the funders, right? All of those other pieces that you might not think about with research unless you're, you know, exposed to that kind of a role. So that was a ton of fun for me. And I ended up loving that lab and 
doing a PhD in that lab. So I got sucked in. Um, (laughs) They got you. They just got got you. They hooked me in. Um, So I got to continue coordinating those studies throughout the first part of my PhD before I started my dissertation project. And um, my dissertation project was actually in middle school girls. Oh my God. Which I love middle school well, I didn't love middle school. Oh, I God. Very Same. much like hey, I didn't middle school. Back. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I had a unibrow that I then overplucked. Did you ever do that? Okay. You I know, I definitely, that. I definitely did. And I also, the words middle and school put together, I would imagine given that you now have a child in preschool, it's like something that, that is in, it's in your future. Yes. But like, it's also so deeply in your past. <laughs> Like it, it was a bad, it's a dark time. It's a dark time. It it was. And so back on that kind of like theme of wanting to be, to think about prevention, like exercise as as prevention of chronic disease or as like establishing good behaviors. I really wanted to become an expert in that age group because for girls, especially that's the time when so many of them stop participation in sport Yes. It's also when most of them start puberty. Although, I mean, that can happen in elementary school too, right? But a lot of them are going through puberty. They have all of these changes going on in their own body and their social circles, in their worldview. Like there's just so much changing there. And it's also when we see like a steep decline in physical activity levels, Mm. when you look at like girls compared to boys. Um, Yes. Whoa. For some reason that feels like something again, that, that you sort of know in the back of your head, but that I don't think I had really thought of it in such clear terms until right now. Yeah. So, so few girls, I mean, look, adolescents in general, about like 30% of them meet the physical activity guidelines, which is really not ideal, but there's a a significant difference between girls and boys with physical activity. So girls are even usually accruing less physical activity during the week than, than their um, counterpart counterparts who are boys. And so I became really interested in this idea of like, well, what can we do from a behavior change perspective to try to Mm -hmm. influence that? Like how can we insulate girls that are in middle school and help promote physical activity behaviors and can we do that by influencing their self-efficacy? Because, you know, I just... I mean, just, the best, the best word, the <laughs> best term. And some, like, honestly, if only we just had more of it all the time, it feels like the greatest thing. Because when I think about it, it's completely true. It's not only, it's not only an identity question, because part of it, sure, is like your, how you think about yourself, like yeah. up until this point in life. But at the same time, if you knew that there was an actual way for you to not only do this, but like feel like you're doing it, like know internally that you're really doing this, that's that's a model for life. You will never stop doing activity at that point, right? I, yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And so um, we designed this really interesting project, which was like totally not, uh, not a typical project. It was a very like, public healthy, and I'm saying this in quotation marks, exercise science project, because I really wanted to understand these psychosocial factors that might make a middle school girl be more physically active. Um, And so what we did was we set up a summer camp. Ooh, that was a busy summer. A summer camp. (laughs) 
<laughs> Rachel's like, I'm still recovering from that summer, but yes. I'm still recovering. Yeah. This was in 2015. Yeah, for, 2014 was data collection, I think. It's a while ago. I'm getting old. No, Way but you know that. what? You know what's scary, Rachel, is that when you say 2015, that to me, in my mind, in some ways, that was about three days ago. And in right. other ways, it was like, that's a lifetime. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. so many... <laughs> It's like so two minutes ago, but yes. Okay. Because as so, you're talking, I'm thinking about my own PE in middle school and what it looked like, yeah. and it was not pretty. But like that also feels like it was yesterday, and that was the 90s. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Like, okay. I, I'm cutting us off, and I don't mean to. I'm no, shutting up. No, I love it. So <laughs> the, we had um, week long camps where they would come and they would be immersed in the university like in our exercise science program. So they got exposed to tons of different types of group exercise. Like we showed them yoga, we would do walking, we did strength training. So for a lot of them, that was their first time ever experiencing like dumbbells or a barbell. We did step aerobics, which is so fun. And we did, we learned a couple of dance routines, like true to my cheer. Yes. I was like, yes, yes, let's teach them some dance routines. We actually walked all the way across campus to the nutrition science department. I think it's the department of food and nutrition sciences, if I'm saying it right. And they got to meet registered dietitians and um, did some like meal prep activities where they got to learn how to make different dips and different, like just exposure to different foods. So they had this like really fun week long camp, which of course parents loved because They got to learn. They got to be on campus, and they had childcare, um, which right. I now appreciate <laughs> more now. than more than I did then. And then after that week long camp, where they kind of like had this big stimulus of social support, they were in a Facebook group. So this is kind of I mean, this was a, you know, a while ago. They were in a private Facebook group where we then delivered an online intervention for eight weeks, where they kept in contact. They had to wear you know activity trackers at certain points. They answered questionnaires at certain points. It was so much fun. Most of the results were like, you know, really small, right. not, not pointing to like, yay, this was right. a massive success, but um, a lot of the anecdotal feedback. It's so funny now yeah. because these girls are in college. Oh my They're God. In high school and college. And it is crazy. Anyway, some of them and their parents have kept up, you know, that we've kept in touch. And a lot of them will say like, I love to lift weights now because you taught me how to do that. Or one of them was telling me for Christmas, one of the parents was saying her daughter, when she moved into her dorm, asked for TRX straps, you know, the suspension trainer because they were exposed to that there. And she thought, well, I can do this in my dorm room. And that just was like, you know what? This is my freaking why. Like that is why I care. That is why this field is important to me. That's why it's so cool to have like female scientists that can be role models for people. Like this is why, because when you introduce physical activity and people have good role models and they understand that they can do that, maybe it becomes a good part of their, you know, self-identity. They're more likely to stick with it long-term. So I still, I love getting to keep in touch with some of them. We still live in the greater Athens area. So I'll run into some of them sometimes. And I'm just like, like you're wow. an adult now. And I always ask them like, are you still exercising? Right. Um, <laughs> and and they're like, like, yes. Well, maybe, or maybe they're just telling me what I want to hear. I don't know. But anyway, it's, it's really cool to think about 
that project and kind of what it led may have led to for some of them personally. So that was my dissertation. And then I did a postdoc in exercise psychology. Oh my God. I have so many questions on that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about the, let's get into the postdoc. What an amazing impact to be able to have, even if it doesn't show up every day in, in the same way for these women, but to be able to see it now and to have this be a part of their everyday routine. So you said it was eight weeks. The yeah, time? an eight week intervention. Yeah, mm-hmm. two months, people. That's just two, two months. Two months of someone like caring and checking in, and them feeling yeah. like they have that support. I mean, it can wow. make for lasting changes, which is so cool. So yeah, so thank you for letting me talk about it. Yeah. God, I oh my god, that's so fascinating. I'm so long. excited to hear about it. All right, so yeah. now let's talk about exercise psychology. <laughs> Whoa, that is a whole other area. That's a whole other field. Also, by the way, I feel like people probably lump these things into one, but I feel like that's an entirely different thing. Tell us about it. It is. Yeah, it's a a totally different field. And this particular professor that I was working for did a lot of work around caffeine Mm. and cognition and caffeine and sports performance. And one of the, so the study that I was actually hired on to work through, which if yeah. you're listening and you haven't heard of a postdoc, you're probably like, what is that? Right. I like to think about it almost like a, like a residency is yeah. for medical doctors. It's additional specialized training where you're technically a professional and you have your PhD credential, but you're still learning. And in this yeah. case for me, it was, it was a different, totally different area. I mean, a lot yeah. of similarities, right? Like still the same kinesiology family of mm. like knowledge, but a really different area. And this trial was funded by PepsiCo. Um, So this is when I started to get very intrigued with industry scientists. Yes. Fascinating. (laughs) It's so fascinating because you really like, I mean, growing up in academia, you really don't get a lot of exposure to industry science unless you have a professor who has funding from industry and you get to interface with them, which is that, that was the case here. And so I was paired up with basically a counterpart at PepsiCo who was a clinical monitor, meaning um, oh she was like a, a highly skilled, yeah, like a highly skilled nutrition science yeah. scientist. And she was checking and double checking everything I did. Luckily we worked together really well, but she was making sure, and, and this is common in, yes. in trials, right? To make sure you're, you're doing everything ethically. You're Never right. falsifying data, you know, because human error happens all the time in right. every field, all the time, usually not on purpose, right? People right. are doing their best. And so, anyways, I was like, gosh, this is so interesting. Like, yeah. you have a PhD and you work for Pepsi. Like, in my mind, I was like, what? How does that happen? No, I've also had that same reckoning during grad school. It was so interesting. Yeah. And so, this study was looking at the impact of this thing called coffee berry extract. Yeah. Yeah. Flowers on, I didn't even know that. Like, yeah, there were like flowers on coffee plants until this project. Right. And so it's a caffeine like derivative basically. And looking at impacts on cognitive function. So different aspects of cognitive function. And so that, that was fascinating. I got to learn a lot more about cognition than I ever thought I would need to understand, which is a really complicated thing to learn about. I mean, that's a lot of like how your brain is working and how you're responding to different stimuli. Yeah. Very interesting. And it was a totally different kind of research, which was fascinating. Again, my biggest takeaway though, was that 
this intrigue of like working with industry, right? Like, oh, you can be a scientist and you can work with industry and interface with the academic world, but not have to make academia your permanent home, home which I have yes. sort of had these like questions right. about, like, I always felt like maybe I don't quite fit in as right. an academic. Like right. maybe I, I have these like other skills that make me stand out. And I felt kind of weird right. in the academic space. Maybe if I was being too social or too outspoken or, <laughs> right, or like maybe just not fitting the stereotypes, speaking up for myself too much. Right. And I also had this drive to like make a faster impact because in the academic world, a lot of the transaction that sort of like matters is, is publication. And that's mm. a slow moving target. Like you can collect data for a study. So for example, my postdoc was in 2016. We collect data for this study. We published it in like 2019. It's such a delay. And right, right. I think it was 2016, 2017. Maybe it was 2018 we published this study. But there's such a delay from the yeah. point at which you like are intervening with human yeah. subjects in the field of exercise science or exercise psychology then you analyze the data, right. submit it to the funder for approval. Then you, you know, submit it for a peer review publication, which of course can be a lengthy process because you know, there's back and forth, different <laughs> right. versions, all of that. And so it just felt like this like, delay and impact where I just didn't feel like that was the best fit for me. And so I started seeking mm-hmm. out industry opportunities and started doing some consulting during my postdoc year. Loved it kept up with the consulting while I took a faculty role for one year in the department of health promotion at UGA. I loved that job because I got to teach prevention of chronic disease. Yes. My favorite class that I ever taught because it was all about empowering college students to make these like lifestyle behavior changes, like a more nutrient dense diet, avoiding binge drinking, you know, avoiding smoke and secondhand smoke, all of these like public health messages. Right. And I are like, we love, it was the best class. It was such a fun class. We had this really cool, I think it was cool. I mean, I don't know, maybe one of my old students is listening and they're like, it wasn't fun. (laughs) Um, I thought it was cool, but we had, I made them do this project (laughs) where they needed to market or sort of like grasp the attention of football fans on a Saturday in Athens. You know, UGA is a huge football school. Yes. The Georgia Bulldogs. Wait, I like, think this is extremely cool already. I just okay. I just got to say, I don't even know exactly what it was, but I already think it's cool. Carry on. <laughs> I, I tried to make cool projects. Again, I don't know. But Saturday in Athens is a huge thing. And if you live in the South and you're a football fan, I'm sure you've like, you've seen the yeah. tailgates. Like legitimately the streets close. Like everyone is out. No, nothing else is open unless it like pertains to the football game. And along with that, there's a lot of like indulging in alcoholic yeah. beverages. Right. And so what I made the students do for their project was come up with a um, campaign yeah. to get students to only drink, you know, a couple of drinks. So no, it's, I think it's unrealistic and that kind of right. study like total abstinence from drinking. Like, completely sort of agree. Like, right. Unrealistic. Right. But if you're going to do it, how do you do it responsibly? How do you yeah. make sure you're not the one driving? How do you have a buddy? So I made them each, um, each group had to come up with different campaigns to make good choices if you were tailgating. And so anyways, 
that was my most favorite class that I've ever taught. And those projects were so much fun because it helped them think about public health and health promotion in a more accessible way. I think sometimes academics and messages from like public health institutions are on this like moral high ground and this like theoretical high ground. And it's like, okay, but like you're 19 and you're on a college campus and it's an amazing, gorgeous weather. Everyone around you is tailgating. Like it's Saturday. Yeah, exactly. That's so, so, so refreshing to hear because it feels like that all the time. We see public health messages now. Now public health is like a part, a little bit more a part of the conversation thanks to the pandemic. And yet it hasn't changed. Like the actual messaging has not changed. It's always like divorced from reality completely. Like it's like this message that then you're left to interpret, but sometimes you need it to be a little, like if you're going to interpret that as a health professional, that can go a lot of different ways. And and like, I don't think we as consumers like take the time to appreciate that sometimes, you know? I completely agree. Wait, so, so what that, was the what was the what were some of the campaigns? Let's hear about those for a sec. Oh, there was a lot of I feel like that was when Uber was first a thing. Like the yeah, concept yeah. of like someone else driving you was first a thing. So there was a lot of like focus on that, right? Like if you're gonna wow. do it, you know, have a driver. And then there's also this when I said that it reminds me, you know, mean yeah. girls were like, Oh, if you're gonna do it, I'd rather you do it in the house. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Amy Polar. Yes, a hundred percent. Okay. Do it in so the one house. of the groups had a campaign design around that and they had like mocked up billboards and like a oh, little like fake commercial. So yeah. that was really funny. And they were dressed up like, you know, Amy Polar, which is funnier. Totally. Gosh, a lot of like holiday or not holiday, but like game day themed drinks that only had like a little bit of alcoholic content still like looked fun and had yeah. you know, so like a more right. like realistic approach. Right. Yeah, so, so much fun to kind of see what they all came up with. And I think so most cool. of them I mean, if you've got to do a final project, like it's kind of a fun one. It's such a fun one. And wait a second. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about this before we move on is I wanted to hear a little bit more about the sort of insights gleaned from learning about industry exposure. When you had this this person with the title of clinical monitor, that feels very <laughs> feels yeah. very like I'm the superintendent of this study. Like it feels it like was. because I think that there's probably the perception out there that that person might have been coming from the company was looking to make sure or to ensure that we were getting closer to certain outcomes. But I'm I'm guessing oh. that your experience was the exact opposite. Yeah, it was the exact opposite. Yeah, so So this person is like a well-respected scientist who's held to the same sort of like ethical standards that I that we hold ourselves to, Jackie. Where it's like you have to be as objective as you can. Of course, everybody comes in with some biases, right? But like this person is super objective, professional, and really there to make sure I'm following the protocol that we've like mutually agreed upon, right? So making sure that like participant number 1002 that that number is easily identifiable on all the files that they filled out that I haven't accidentally mixed something up or like when I have my undergrad assistant entering data into a spreadsheet she's spot checking and kind of pulling at random like let's make sure there aren't any discrepancies here so it's actually just they're there representing science 
and like the truth seeking that I feel like science is good sciences. Yeah. And so this person was awesome. And I actually had really cool conversations with her about how she got into that industry role. How did she get into that role? I mean, we may need to call her, but I, but my, my other question about that component of this is that, you know, when, I mean, and you have a full PhD in exactly (laughs) in what I'm about to ask, but, but I mean, you know how for at the basic level, right? Like at the end of my master's program was where all of that kind of research, Mm -hmm. you know, I had the two semesters of the different, and it's, it's nothing compared to your training in that area, but it's way more than, than the average person. Right. So my big question would be like, there are some of the fundamentals that we're trained to know about good quality research versus not. Mm-hmm. Is something like like that to me is like an up level of good quality research that maybe like how do we look for that as someone looking at a study, right? Like how would we know? Well, I think so most of the times in peer reviewed publications if they're coming yeah. from a reputable journal Gosh, and look, we could talk about quality yeah. research and like how to think about a study and how to critically look Ooh, at it. I, I want love, to talk about that. I love, I love that. I would definitely want to talk that. about that with you. We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. I love talking about that kind of stuff. A lot of the times at the top of the paper where they have the yeah. author, like the bylines, they will disclose if somebody comes from the funder. And right. so, for example, in our case on this particular paper, she's on the author line and she was part of our research team and her job was to maintain like a high quality of data collection and interpretation and results. And so it discloses, you know, that she's affiliated with the funder on the author line. So that's something that you can look for and think about. And then I think too, you know, in theory, in theory, higher quality journals, they have peer reviewers who are, yeah. which I, I peer review for a couple of journals, who are trained in that area and who are supposed to ask the authors questions to make sure that they've done their due diligence, that things yeah. are, the conclusions they're drawing are the best possible conclusions from the results and the data yeah. that they collected. That they're not sort of like overgeneralizing and that there's a good balance between the results and this like generalizability or it's like application of the findings. Right. And so I think that's in theory, higher quality journals that are more rigorous are looking for that to a larger extent. Now being someone who's also submitted things to journals across the board, as far as quality spectrum goes, it's also sometimes just like luck of the draw. Like, are they looking for papers on a certain topic is right. this study that we did too small of a sample size to go into this big yeah. old journal, yeah. et cetera. So it's also like, do we have too many articles this month on yes. cognition? Right. Like it could be. Exactly. It could be that. So too. interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. The funny thing about this is that, and I don't know, maybe this is just by like my personal bias. Maybe this isn't true of other people. <laughs> what I'm about to say. But when I've seen that before about the disclosure about the funder having a role in the team, I think there's like a little bit of a bias that that perhaps the results may skew toward the outcome when that's not actually what's happening at all. And, and also it may, you're not, you're Maybe just looking ends. at the headline. Yeah. Like it may not have anything, it could totally, it, yeah. it's really meant to be the highest quality standard, but you may or may not 
see it that way. I don't, but I, but I guess it's always going to be then your bias about what the actual research outcomes are. You know what I like? The, yeah. So yeah. the other thing that I think is so interesting about your, your process when submitting is that the randomness too means what gets left on the floor? Like what kind of research has been done that perhaps we haven't seen yet or we don't yet know about yeah. or I mean and the other thing that I would love your take on is I always find myself going from the abstract <laughs> to the discussion I, with, yeah. with very little with maybe a glance at the results because I feel like the papers that I'm willing to trust the most almost like to put any sort of weight in and granted, I mean, you and I both, I know are aligned on the idea that one paper does not make or break any kind of area yeah. of research, but, but the ones where I feel like I'm going to go back and now start and read this in full is when the discussion is very much willing to be self-critical. Like I, I have this yes. issue with the idea that you're, your study was perfect. Okay. Then it's well, automatically, if your study was perfect, it's unlikely that you're going to make it to this peer review as it is, but like, or exactly. hopefully, but you, you still see that too much in my opinion. Like, I feel like I'd, I want to know that you know where you messed this up. <laughs> yeah. Or that you understand the limitations right. of like right. that type of study design. Exactly. Or exactly. That sample that you were yeah. able to get of the population or, you know, 100%. The, bi the selection bias, right? Like, for example, right. people who participate in studies are different than those who choose yes. not to, like right off the bat, right? Like, so calling out and discussing like here's the results that we found from this sample with right. this specific intervention at this time of year blah right. blah 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 here's what we found and here are the implications at large to the general population and, and sometimes there there aren't any like maybe right. they, this can really only apply to a population or a sample that's just like the sample that's used in the right. study and so i think I think we often see, especially when like a news outlet picks up a study, we often see this overgeneralization of the results yeah. to the population at large or to the field at large, right? Totally. So you might see like a one randomized controlled trial that maybe it was really rigorous in the field of exercise science. Maybe it was a great, well-designed study and they wrote the paper well, and then a media outlet kind of like portrays it as like this is the new direction of xyz it's like All whoa like right hold up here right and so i will say i have seen a couple of like really well done pickups of studies from some major news outlets where they have maybe the author the first author of the study or one of the mm. researchers on the team explaining it and i always love to see that like Me i look too. for that yes I look for yes. that like if i see yeah. something in new york times or on well and good or whatever yeah. i'm looking for them to have an actual expert someone credible right interpreting the study aside from just the writer of the column completely true completely true I also feel like that's such a good takeaway for media in general is that like you want to be able to talk to someone who was on the ground or someone who maybe wasn't on the ground but but can understand this yes. the actual application of this research in real life from their experience and from being able to to critically interpret the data that that without feeling like okay no I no we can't just take that away because this news I, and I, yeah. I I don't know if you find this but maybe this is just a New York thing but 
I feel like I see that a lot on the local news here in New York. Yes. Is that like, oh, we'll just get here. like a report that's like, coffee is great for you. Like, and then my favorite thing, and I'm sure this probably gets to you, right? Like, is it people with coffee? Uh, <laughs> someone okay, who well, is like deeply, it's its whole other thing. It's its whole crazy, crazy. But when I hear people say, this line, which is, is it good for you or is it bad for you? I feel like there's a new study every day that says it's good or bad. And I'm like, no, no, that's not what any of them said. (laughs) None of them said, none of them assigned a value to this thing, number one. And also that, no, I I think that the idea that you still think that that is even worth saying drives me insane. It's like, because you told yourself that story so many times that you, now you've got to be like, is it good for you or bad for you? No. No. Well, it's like, it's the nuance. Way off. So many times, like, so many times in the media and when people talk about science, they think right. about it as, like, good or bad. Yes. Or, like, oh, yeah. this is health-promoting or it's not. And I think that's a telltale sign that someone is not really an expert or yes. needs coaching to interpret something in the right context because, and that's a nice way to say it, yeah. because they're lacking the ability to identify the nuance. Right. Yes. And a good scientist is always going to point that out. I mean, right. there's nuance in everything, especially when it comes to nutrition science, exercise science, right. public health concepts, like that has to be there. And I think I was just going to add when, when you were talking about yeah. um, the local news and we, we talked about how the pandemic sort of like highlighted yes. the public health. Yes. One of the things that has, I'm curious to see your take on this actually, yeah. that has made me crazy is that most news outlets will feature medical doctors to talk about things like exercise Mm -hmm. science and nutrition science. And I have so many friends who are MDs and I have the utmost respect for their training. In fact, like I know they took even more science classes than I did in certain areas. Yeah. However, Yes. We don't have, we have different skill sets. And and so I I think I'm just curious to hear your take. I, it, it, 100%. I was just going to ask you another, and I still will ask you this question, but I feel completely the same way. I feel like the sort of problem, I think, at large with the pandemic messaging was that you either had public health experts who, in that case, they've had no exposure to actual one-on-one patient care. So right, right there, that's a huge problem. Then you'll yes. have people who who are MDs that are only on the front lines seeing people who have already contracted the virus or they're infectious disease experts, which is wonderful for infectious disease experts, but it may not be relevant in something that's a that's a virus, right? Because also that behaves differently in the host, right? Like, because it's not going to be the same as every type of infectious yeah. disease and maybe your training is different. Then you'll also see people who, and I feel like this is a real miss on the part of the media, is to not have people with expertise in other areas of behavior and lifestyle prevention. Yes. Because honestly, like there are so many ways that a dietitian, that someone with your background would be much better primed to speak to XYZ thing. And I'm sure that we're not alone in that. I feel like there's other areas of expertise that also would be huge in this. And that has been completely missing from the conversation. And I can't help but feel like, I know it's not intentional on the part of the media because I, you know, because having come from media, I know (laughs) there are some things you just don't know if you don't know them, right? Like, of course. But on the other hand, I think that there was so much of a prevention message that was missed. 
during the last two years. Like there's just so much about it because you look at something like how just COVID was transmitted and you think the only things that we have control over are just pure behavioral and also general mindset about self-efficacy, about taking care of yourself. Like there's so much missing from this. That was only the thing that was getting me. It was almost like a real intervention, like an intervention in real time that like you were watching it go bad because (laughs) there there didn't seem to be a good understanding of how to influence behavior. And I think that's, yeah, it was so frustrating. And of course, a lot of, you know, like we were being great science communicators and trying to at least get the people in our circles to understand but it just seemed like a real missed opportunity. And I belong to the Society of Behavioral Medicine, which is, you know, a lot of psychologists and then a lot of people who consider themselves like behavior change scientists, which I do think exercise scientists are in a lot of ways, especially if they're more on the applied side. And that was a huge takeaway from that conference this past year was just like the real miss on the influencing of people's behaviors, right? right? It was all, it was just this like messaging that, almost never changed, but it's like it wasn't working. Right, right. And there was no, what happened to that part of it? It's like, this isn't working. So maybe we need to come back together and chat for a sec. Yeah, make a new hypothesis. Yes, and also, Rachel, I feel like you probably feel deeply about this too. And then I promise we will move on after this. But it kind of enraged me to come back from this trip and see that, all of a sudden this week or last week, the CDC is coming out with new guidance. And you're like, mm-hmm. Are, we're in 2022. You couldn't, yeah. what, you didn't feel like updating that earlier? I, I'm confused. You know what I mean? Like everything about it is like, and it, first of all, it's still not well written, but that's beside the point. The point being yeah. that like, this feels like too little, too late. Kind of here, just like. Yeah. Well, it makes people, you know, not have trust for right. scientists and experts across the board, right? right. It, has, it makes people think like, well, we can't trust yeah. that organization or, oh, she has a PhD. She's a weirdo that we can't trust, right? right? Like, it makes people, I mean, that's a little dramatic, but not really, Not right? really. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean because it feels like now the word expert has become a little bit of a dirty word and you're like, wait, but I went yes. my whole life trying to get here. I know. And, <laughs> damn it, I was in school for like 14 years for this. No, it wasn't that long. Exactly. Four plus two plus four. I don't know. It was a lot. Plus it's a lot. Time. It was it's a, a lot. lot. We could 11? use an equation for this. We could use a regression equation for I this. Know. I know. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Like 11 years of school for that. No. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. So let's see. Where did we leave off? We are talking about postdoc. I started really getting interested in this yes. idea. Yeah. And I had always been a personal trainer, a group exercise yeah. instructor. I just loved exercise. And, and once undergrad was over, and I think a lot of prior athletes, yes, I still consider myself an athlete. Well, maybe not after having two kids. I don't know. But no, I, I think, think you're even of, more, I'd say you're even more of an athlete, I would argue. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> but a lot of athletes, when they lose that like identity of their yeah. sport or whatever they're doing, whether it's in high school, even middle school, like yeah. you know, we just talked about, you kind of lose this like sense of belonging or like part of your identity. Yes. And so I found that in group exercise. Like I loved being yes. part of the team, like the group, we were all showing up at the same time, holding each other accountable. So I had been a long time group exercise coach and personal mm-hmm. trainer. 
and started to network within the fitness industry. So during that postdoc, I began consulting for a company called Pure Bar. Ah, Um, I didn't even know that. How did I not even know this? Okay. Yes. And so my first project for them, it was just part-time consultant where I just sort of like dip my toes in, see, okay, what is it like to be a scientist in the industry and what kinds of roles might there be? Because I really just, I didn't right. know. It's not like there were a lot of people sharing info about right, that. So right. The first project was rewriting all of their coach education for the brand and oh working with their marketing team to revise like the language that was used and the right. claims that they made and how they talked oh. about the results of the workout. And it was so fascinating and so much fun that I ended up leaving my faculty role, which is like... <gasps> Right, which I, which so, is like every whoa. academic that could possibly be listening to you right now is like gripping their chair. Like, no, she didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, I did. I loved it so much and thought it was so interesting because every day was different and there just seemed yeah. to be such a faster way to make an impact. Like yeah, here you have this like corporate team who had 700 stores all spread out throughout the country. And this team that I was part of was coaching all of the coaches and designing the workouts for the coaches to deliver to like a million women who were doing that. In my mind, I was like, I can right away influence their behaviors, make sure the workout is safe, that it's It's fun, that it's effective. It it was like, what? Like it is hard. It's hard in like a mentally, it's it's hard. Yeah. It's hard in a different way. If you've never done bar, it's, Rachel, I just, it's funny that you say this because in being away, I did for the first time, I'd never done it before, a stand-up paddleboard. And all I could think about while I was trying to do it was pure bar. I stood up, I stood up for about, I want to say 10, I think I counted to 10. And when I, when I say that I stood up, I mean, I stood up like a couple times and fell and that was fine because it's very hot and you're like, okay, it's very hot. Now I'm in the water. It's good. (laughs) Right. So like the falling is kind of like a reward. It feels a little bit like, okay, that's good that I fell. But then I was like, okay, but I really want to try this. In doing that, all I could think about was pure bar. I I literally, for 10 seconds, I was like, what would I tell myself if I were at the bar right now? Because I was like, it's all of those muscles. It's all of those. And then I came back down because I was like, okay, I'm not quite here yet to like move now. Yeah. I just stood up on the water. Okay. I'm not ready it's to move. So, but okay. it's really hard. I've only tried it once and I barely could stand up. So it's I mean, so hard, but it really made me think that like, it's funny to just hear you say that you were on the sort of in this science role at this company, because to yeah. me, I was like, oh my God, what a genius workout this is. <laughs> like when, when a workout helps you do something in life, like outside yeah. of the room, even if it's something as seemingly fun and silly as a stand-up paddleboard, you're still like, how cool is that, right? Like there's it's this so moment cool. yes. of being like, wow, cool. Like, I want to wow, go back I and like do that tra- again. Yes. Specificity, right? Like you're, right. Training, you're training for yeah. life. Yeah, I love that. So I ended up working for Pure Bar for a couple of years. I stayed involved with the university, like on a couple of research projects yeah. and just sort of like, I kept like one toe in that. Yes. Cause you know, yes. I think that interplay between staying involved in research in the academic yeah. world, but then also being a translator of that information yes. to the industry, we yeah. just need more people doing that. We, we really need do. like the two sides to come together because that I think is how public yes. health will be improved a in a thousand percent. way. A thousand percent. Yeah. There just seems to be like on both sides and having been on both sides, like almost like a 
I, I might get some, you know, <laughs> some head turns for saying this. There was this like a distaste for the other yes. side. Um, In both, and, you're so both right ways. about that. I totally agree. I totally agree. Yes. And I, I get it. Like I can see yeah. both perspectives, but I'm also like, you guys, we have to work together. We've got to figure this out uh, right. because exercise, eating, like yeah. these are all things that we need to be like functioning humans. Right. We need right. these things to like survive and like we right. want to be thriving. So yeah. I don't know. There's just such an opportunity there. So yeah. I, I loved the industry pace. And then a role opened up at OTF, Orange Theory yeah. Fitness. That was sort of like a bigger version of the role that I was in. Right. And I was so excited about that role because Orange Theory collects a ton of data. Right. And it felt to me almost like a treasure trove that had not yet been like fully examined. And so to think about like having a seat at that table and being part of that team was really cool. So I took the role at Orange Theory. We actually moved to Florida for about a, a little over a year. Because to take the role, I needed to move at that time, but it kind of lined up. See, I started that job five months before the pandemic. Wow. When everything shut down. Isn't that crazy? That's So you moved to Florida for 2020. Yes. Then, and then came back 2021 to Georgia. Yeah, we came back. We've been in our house here. Actually, it was just a year. I'm like looking at my calendar. A year, like last week. Yeah. So because of the pandemic, I mean, I was in Florida, but everyone was working from home and our family, you know, we have little kids. Our family was here. So it's it's hard to have little kids with or without support, but harder without support, especially when both parents are working and all that. A hundred percent. And in a new place too, right? Like that's already so hard. It was. So we're glad that we were able to move back. I think South Florida is beautiful. Yeah. It's so like the water there is so much more clear than on the North Carolina coast, which is where I grew up going. But it just, the you know, the pandemic had like shut everything down. So we didn't really get to experience it. Like I always think like, oh, if we would have moved a year earlier yeah. or even now, it probably would feel and would have been so different because you could like leave your house. Right. <laughs> So I know. to anyone else who moved during the pandemic, like, I feel you. It's hard. And I will say, like, to the Boca Raton area, which is yeah. where we were, there's a lot of older adults there. Oh, yes. That's a great, like, retirement. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't want to live there when you're retired? Like, that's the goal, right? Like, it's a beauty. You're, like, in a country yes. club neighborhood right. on the beach. Like, right. hello. Right. So I, it just was, it really wasn't, um, didn't feel like it was focused around, like, young families. Right. It was just a different vibe. Totally fine. It just, it was the timing plus the vibe change, like all of it. Right. I don't even think I really understood that until now is that you were there for basically a pandemic move, but also for Orange Theory. Wow. Crazy. Mm -hmm. So now you're back in Georgia, which is where you're meant to be. I think so. We, we love it here. Funny story. That's kind of also weird. So we actually lived in the same neighborhood. Oh my God. I was about to be like, did you live in the same house? Tell me you didn't live in the same house. No, that would be (laughs) very odd. Um, But when we were looking to move back and Orange Theory had okayed the transition, all the the housing market is wild. And like Athens, Georgia is even wild. Like on what planet would that even be possible? 
but that's just where we are. And so we contacted the builder that we had worked with the first Mm -hmm. time to say like, if by chance you have anything available and he's like, we do, but it's three houses down, like from your old house. (laughs) And we were like, we'll take it. And he was like, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Where are you on this? Right. Yeah. So we're like, we know the people well now that live in our old house. And it's sort of weird. Like it's a little weird because it's like, wow, we like brought our first baby (laughs) home to that house. Right. And we brought our second baby home to this house. And it's kind of like, that's interesting, but it worked out. So we're happy to be back. Thank God. I feel like it's like a a true homecoming, honestly. It has been. (sighs) Okay. I still have real questions to ask you. And I feel like this is, I can't not ask you this question. Let's say someone said to you, I have no idea where to start. Like I need, I know I need to get active, but I have no, I don't know where to start moving or actually I'll ask the or after, after you answer this, what would you say? First of all, so many people are in that boat. Actually the vast majority of people in the U S are in this same boat. So right. If you feel in your mind like you're alone in making this like yeah. realization or that you're finally, you know, feeling brave enough to ask the question, ask for support, you're so not alone in that. So I think mm. one, normalizing it. You've yes. got to normalize it. There's so many people who are feeling that same way of like this guilt of like, oh, I should be doing this. Yeah. But I'm just not. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get started. You gotta normalize it. I think that's yeah. always the first, that's the first thing. Hundred percent. So leading with empathy, if there are any like fitness professionals listening, you've got to be able to lead with empathy. And that's why that year in between school for me was so formative because I actually was working with people face to face who would say like, it's my first time coming in. I've never worn sneakers before. Right. Right. What should I look for in sneakers? Or I don't have a sports bra. Will I be okay without one during this workout? I've never bought one. Like, those are real questions and feelings yeah. that people have when they've just never right. exercised before. So you've got to lead with empathy. And then I think the second thing is that you just, you want to start by legitimately walking. I mean, yeah. most of the public health research that we have and like the consensus, I always look at consensus statements, these big, really smart groups of people get together. They look at all the highest quality evidence and they come up with these sort of like recommendations, right. That are for the the better of the public. Most of the work that they're considering in those is moderate walking, meaning like you're walking and you can still have like a breathy, sure. But a a conversation, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's walking and the evidence shows like, yeah, more intense can be better for certain outcomes. Sure. Resistance training, hugely important. We can talk about that next, but the biggest thing for the buck is when you go from nothing to something, Yes, 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes, twice a week. Like that's where the biggest return on investment is going to come. When you look at things like a lower risk for heart disease, Mm. feeling better, improving your mood, improving your sleep quality and your latency, like all of these things really the return on investment is when you go from nothing to something. And the something does not have to mean hours in the gym to look like the fitness influencers that you see online. This something can mean just going for a walk with a friend. Maybe you don't have a social support close to you. Can you do like a walking meeting at work? Yes. Can you call a parent or 
a friend that you haven't spoken with in a while and say like, Hey, I'm going to walk while we talk. Like, you know, will you keep me company? All of those little decisions, they start to add up and they improve your self-efficacy over time. Right. Right. But they're also improving so many other things, like legitimately at a metabolic level, even going from nothing to a little bit of walking every week is going to have such a huge return on investment. And so I think what we have to do is lower the barrier. We've got to lower the barrier. People think, yeah. Oh, oh, I need a personal trainer because (laughs) I've got to do three hours a week in the gym. And it's like, great. Do I wish personal trainers were more accessible. I am one also. Right. By the way. I love her. I am a personal <laughs> trainer. So if you're listening and you're like, oh, right. you no, I am one. There aren't enough fitness professionals yeah. to actually get all of the people who need to be active moving. Right. Okay. And so we have to make it more accessible. We have to make it low cost, safe, right. like walkable neighborhoods. Yes. Schools that have PE. Oh, it's yes. all of these little things that, that will add up. So I think Got to normalize it and then start with walking. That's always yes. my biggest thing. Start but low. But the something to nothing is so powerful. I mean, I just feel like you're so, first of all, just from an outcome standpoint, you're so, so right. I mean, just doing something is yeah. automatically lowering your risk of chronic disease just as long as it's consistent. It's almost like you just have to like moving a little bit more for a little period of time more than you like sitting for an extra hour, sitting for an extra half hour, right? Like whatever it is. So powerful. Okay, wait, let's go back to resistance training and then we'll go from there because I really could keep you here for about three days and I think (laughs) we'd still be talking. Okay, so resistance training, when it comes to starting that, what is the significance of resistance training, particularly for women, let's say? Yeah, so resistance training is going to help improve muscular strength and endurance it's also going to help you maintain your lean mass with age, which for women is deal. so, I mean, it's important for everyone, yeah. but especially for women, um, you know, peak bone mass is reached for everyone somewhere in the twenties yeah. and resistance training nasty. And, nasty. Actually, kind of, <laughs> and resistance training throughout the like rest of your life can help what they call, and I, I actually hate this word, but it's an important word in science, yeah. attenuate. Yes. It can lessen the yeah. of, of the decline. So it right. can help you maintain the lean right. mass that you built, especially in your bones and in your muscles right. over time. And it, this is another, you know, when you get on fitness Instagram or yeah. Facebook TikTok. or you see these or, commercials, TikTok, oh, yeah. <laughs> You see all of these people who are doing really long workouts. Yeah. And yes, that might be important for specific outcomes that they're training for or specific right. aesthetic results. However, what I say for women is that if you can do two 20 to 40 minute resistance training sessions a week and maintain yeah. that, like you are doing awesome and I am right. cheering for you because. Right that is going to be a large enough dose, a large enough stimulus for you to enjoy all those benefits that we were just touching on. So again, it's like, you've got to make it more approachable, right? You have to make it more approachable so that more women are comfortable trying it out. And I think group exercise is a really good introduction to resistance training for a lot of people, because I think about, you know, a lot of the older women that I worked with during my PhD program, they had never, ever right. touched a dumbbell, a kettlebell, 
a barbell. Right. And that is so intimidating, psychologically intimidating. It's physically, it feels physically foreign, but a group exercise setting, it's more affordable than personal training, right? It's, there's a lot of really good things about it. It can teach people, okay, here's how you get set up with this. This is what this movement feels like. Here's how I know I'm doing it well, well enough. And here's, you know, mentally what I should be looking for in my own body. Here's how I assess, like, can I go up in weight or am I at the right amount? Like, I think a a group setting like that can be a really good first introduction to resistance training for people who are are willing to try that out. What about if you fall into that category and you're like, I'm just afraid of looking stupid. I just don't want to look dumb. I would do that, but I'm afraid that I am going to get there and I don't even know what a dumbbell is. And Rachel just said kettlebell. And what if I've never seen a kettlebell before? You know what I mean? Like what I think that's, that's a big part of, cause I'm totally with you that like, once you get to the group setting, you realize that honestly, yeah, there's going to be some people here that have taken every class and then there are going to be newbies just like you. And then there's a whole bunch of people in the middle. Like there's always going right. to be that kind of you know, mix of, of stuff. But what would you say to somebody who's like, I just don't want to look dumb. I don't want to know. I don't want this to be my first time seeing a dumbbell. (laughs) I know. Well, look, I think that's a normal, again, that's a normal feeling. It's, it's normal to feel scared when you're trying a lot of new things, exercise being one of them, especially because it's like your body, like you feel very vulnerable when you're doing it. And I think especially a group exercise setting where there are mirrors, which are designed so that the instructor can see you. Right. Well, right. 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 That's why they're there. Okay. Right. But when you are seeing this like room with all these mirrors and these other people who look like they know what they're doing, first of all, a lot of them are learning just like you, but it can be intimidating. So what I would say is there are a lot of really good resources online. If you know where to like, you can find great resources. So like the American college of sports medicine or actual, I know the word expert is like a dirty word, actual experts who no, have, we like it. We're taking it back. We're reclaiming back. the word expert. Yes. We didn't go to school for this long for nothing. <laughs> if you're someone like, yeah, exactly. If you're someone like me who likes to like show up prepared, for example, yes. most Love companies, it. if you're going to take a group exercise class, they've got resources that teach you a little bit about it online before you show up. So cool. That can kind of demystify things. Yeah you know, pull the cover off, like, here's what's actually happening. I think that can be a great place to start. And then social support, bring a friend, yeah, family member with you, if you can, because that will help you, you know, it helps ease your nerves a little bit. There was such a big trend in, in New York. Maybe this was a countrywide thing. No, I think it was definitely a coastal. I, I'm not sure, but there was this trend. Do you remember this in like the, I want to say like 2010s, maybe like 2009. I don't know where everyone was like, we're going to learn to pole dance because <laughs> it's such a great workout. Do you remember this? Yes, yeah. I totally remember that. And I remember <laughs> like, even now, like, first of all, first of all, if anyone saw Hustlers, okay, with JLo, that shit looks really hard. That does so not hard. look easy. Like, I mean, if, and I feel like, okay, listen, at least at the very least now we're talking dumbbells and we're not talking <laughs> poles. Like that feels a little bit more difficult versus lifting a weight. That feels oh like, God. okay, if you do it wrong, you're still just lifting weight. You're not going to fall from like, you know, a pole. T- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I totally agree. Oh my gosh. Also like the core strength and coordination to be able to do that. Well, I don't have it. Jackie. I'm not I don't there. have it Rachel either, but I feel like, like, listen, I want to get it, but I don't know. I don't want to 
seek out the the workout that was cool 12 years ago. <laughs> like now I'm like, where would I even find that? Well, I, I think I got to just do a sit up and then see where I land. You know what I mean? Like maybe do a plank like one time. Anyway, this is amazing. I have loved this chat so much. You're going to have to come back because we have more to get I into. Love. But in the meantime, you've got to give us your last meal. Tell Ooh, us. Okay. okay. So for the main course, oh, I, would I like we're starting strong. We're starting out with the main course. Okay. Like it. Love okay. It. For the main course, I would have my mom's homemade chicken and dumplings. For some reason, like when I oh, like, yes, when I haven't, when I didn't feel well growing up, that's always what she would make. It's like the best comfort food after I had both babies. Like I had C-sections for both of them. That's what I wanted and craved. Like, I don't know. There's something about that that would be like so comforting. So it'd be that. And then for dessert, I I am a huge sweet eater. I love dessert. Okay. I feel like I have a tie between like really fudgy brownies with Oh my God. What is it called? Funfetti icing. You know what I'm talking about? Oh my God. The best thing ever. A funfetti icing. Yes. Yeah. So brownies with that. Yeah. And then yeah. a piece of it's cheese. It's a two course. Cake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With raspberries like and raspberry syrup drizzled over it. Like that's what I would eat. I would have a glass of red wine's my favorite. I love San Diego. Yes. Oh, I like every, every single thing you've just said has like a beautiful component. I'm not saying it goes together. Well, no, no, like, no. It's okay. Favorite. Exactly. The, the idea behind the last meal is like, you're sort of like taste buds and internal organs would just like rearrange to reset between all of these things. I yes. think so that you can, Rachel, where can people <laughs> listening, find you, follow you, talk to you? Where should they go? Oh my gosh. I would love for them to follow me on Instagram. It's z.exercise.doc. An amazing follow, if I may just add. Yes. Oh, thank you. So I love when people slide into my DMs and ask questions. I love just to network and meet other people. And I think the biggest takeaways that you get from my page are just tips on how to be a smarter consumer of scientific information and physical activity promotion all day long. All day long. You've got to come back. Rachel, thank you so much. This was the best. So fun. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at JacquelineLondonRD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.